Nehemiah, uh, mainly because Nehemiah is about building something. It's about being part of something new. It's God calling Nehemiah, who was a cupbearer, who was um, a trusted advisor to the king of Persia, and put something on his heart that said, I want you to go and rebuild my city. Jerusalem, God's city, was in shambles. The walls had been destroyed, and it was chaos and anarchy. And so Nehemiah gets it on his heart that he wants to go and be part of rebuilding Jerusalem, being part of something new, something being coming out of the rubble, something um, that was going to bring people together and bring unity together. And so that's what we're, we've been really focusing on here at CF is what does God have for us next? What is this new season uh, like? What's this going to be here at our church? And so we've been looking at Nehemiah um, and, and dreaming and planning and building and talking about the things that uh, we want to see God do in this city, see things God, we want God to do in this church, in this neighborhood. Um, actually, for those of you, uh, there's this sweet art project we got on the wall um, you know, as we've been talking about Nehemiah and building something new and being part of something, uh, we've had different people come up and sign different prayers, different dreams, different things that you want to see God do at CF. Things that we can look back on this years from now and say, look how God moved in those ways. Look how he answered those prayers. So if this is home for you, if this is uh, your place, um, you call it your church home, and you haven't signed our, our cool banner, come do that after the service. There should be markers. There are markers up here. Um, so please come do that because we want to get as many different people on there as we possibly can. Um, so Nehemiah. Nehemiah has been called to build this, build this wall. And he goes to the king. And um, from the time Nehemiah feels called to build the wall all the way up uh, through where we left off last week where the wall was actually starting to get built, it's been over a year. It's about, been about a year and a half. And men and women from all over the place are building together. People have come from outside of Jerusalem. People who don't even live there have come because they have seen the importance of what was going on there. They have seen the passion for what um, Nehemiah was doing. And they wanted to see God's city back to what it should be. And so as the work begins, um, we see people rise up. This morning we're going to see opposition rise up. Um, and this is not a new concept, right? History is filled with God's people pursuing him, God's people saying, I feel God is calling us towards this, and other people on the other side opposing that. Other people trying to distract and demoralize and destroy what God would have for us. Um, so what do we do? What do we do when opposition arises? What do we do when opposition happens? Uh, and so this morning we're going to look at Nehemiah. We're going to learn how to oppose opposition. So I'm going to pray and then we're going to jump into Nehemiah chapter 4. Heavenly Father, uh, God, you are good. Um, Lord, we, we love to gather together and get to worship you because you're good and you're awesome and you're perfect. And just who you are is more than enough reason for us to sing for hours on end. Um, but beyond that, you, you show us your love daily. You show us your provision. You show us that you are faithful and that you are trustworthy. Um, and you show us how much you love us by sending your son to die on a cross for us. Um, God, as we open up Nehemiah, as we study um, the prophet Nehemiah, Lord, I pray that you speak through me. Let nothing come from my lips that isn't from you. Uh, and Lord, I pray that you send your Holy Spirit to um, really just dunk this place um, and do what he does best, um, shape us, challenge us, encourage us, and equip us to be a light in this dark city. We pray all of these things because Jesus is good. Amen. So Nehemiah chapter 4, we're going to start in verse 1. I'm going to read the couple, first couple of verses and then we're going to talk about it. Nehemiah 4. Now when Sanballat heard, heard what we are doing and that we are building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, 
What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish it up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? Tobiah, the Ammonite, was beside him, and he said, Yes, what are they building? If a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. So let's stop right there. So we see our villain. We see our opposition, our outward opposition in the form of Samballot. We met this guy in chapter 2. Nehemiah shows up in Jerusalem. Samballot hears this and freaks out and starts getting angry. He doesn't like that Nehemiah is even around checking things out. And now the work has actually started happening, right? Chapter 3 is all about the building of the wall. And so now Samballot is really mad. He is so angry that this wall is being built that there is unity happening in this town. And so he mocks the Jews. He mocks the people who are building the wall. And he tries to discourage them, really. But his goal is to put a stop to building this wall. And so he discourages them. He says things like, will they finish it in a day? What, are they going to pray and just poof, the wall's going to show up? Were they going to sacrifice their way to it? What can these Jews accomplish, these feeble Jews? What can they possibly get done? And there's a little bit of truth to that, right? We talked in the last couple of weeks. The people building this wall were not masons. They were not, you know, professional builders or contractors. These were just dudes. These were just regular people. There's uh, perfumists. There's city officials. uh, There's just random families. These were not professional builders. So yeah, they were a little feeble in their preparation. They weren't trained to be doing this work. And that's usually how discouragement goes, right? That's usually how people who want to discourage you, when you get a discouraging thought in your head, there's a little kernel of truth to it. There's some truth, but often those who are trying to discourage us neglect the greatest truth. They neglect that God was with them. God was seeing this project through. And then in in verse 2, we see Tobiah. As I like to call Tobiah the sidekick. He's like the little hype man, right? Sam Ballot is like the main bully, and Tobiah is like his running pal. Discouraging people, people like this kind of travel in packs, and so he chimes in as well. He wants to discourage. He wants to try and bring down these people. Discouragement is oftentimes, it's almost like the opposite of faith, right? For Christians, we have faith that God is who he says he is. He is good, and that he is trustworthy. We believe that God keeps his promises. But discouragement is the opposite of faith because discouragement looks and believes in the worst possible scenario. It looks for the worst possible thing to happen. And it tends to pretty much forget who God is and what God has promised to do for us. Tobiah doesn't really quite understand the situation, right? He talks, he makes this funny joke. He says, if a fox goes up on that wall, he will break down their stone wall. They will break down their stone wall. See, Tobiah doesn't understand what's going on here. This wall isn't the Jews. This wall isn't Nehemiah. This wall is God's. God is at the heart of this. They miss who is really behind what's going on and what's happening. Opposition comes in lots of different forms. What does opposition look like for us in Chicago in 2015? It comes in lots of different forms. I mean, but we aren't, you know, last Sunday we prayed for the persecuted church. It was, it was pray for the persecuted church Sunday. And we prayed for our brothers and sisters around the world who are being captured and beheaded and killed. That doesn't really happen here, right? That doesn't really happen in Chicago in 2015. But we do have opposition. We do have those who are against Christians in America. 
right? And they tend to fall into a couple of different categories. One, there's the intolerance of tolerance, right? The tolerance, that's the, that's the buzzword, is everybody wants to be tolerant. Everybody wants to, you know, everybody's belief is okay, everybody's equal, everyone's the same, and everyone's cool until your belief goes up against my belief, and I don't like what you have to say, because then I don't want to be tolerant of that. And that's the issue with Christianity, right? Because Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one gets to the Father but through me. He says, I am the bread of life. He says, I am the living water. Jesus says, I am. He says, I am God. I am who I say I am. And that doesn't fly with everybody else. And so tolerance says, we will be tolerant up until you make those kind of statements, and then we're going to hate you. We're going to oppose you. You can believe anything you want as long as what you believe doesn't offend me, because then you're not allowed. Opposition for us today looks like there's a lack of respect for Christians who are in academics or politics. There's this belief that if you actually believe the Bible, you actually believe in a creation, you actually believe that it wasn't just poof and people showed up, you don't believe in evolution, you actually believe God knocked down those walls of Jericho, or that the sea actually split, you believe that? Well, if you do, then you must not be that smart. And so those people who are Christians that are in higher learning places, places of academics and politics and science, they don't get that kind of respect because, heaven forbid, they actually believe what the Bible says. When in actuality, archaeology and sociology and science in general continuously on a weekly basis is proving that the Bible is true. The more and more digging that's going on in the Middle East is finding that the places that the Bible talks about, the size of the things they talk about, the, the places, the locations, the things that happen, the Bible is actually true and actually historical. They're learning that, you know, it's healthy for us to take a rest. It's healthy for us to sleep and take a Sabbath. Over and over again, society is learning the things that we learn in the Bible, the things that God has said, this is how to live the best life possible, are actually true. Over and over again, these things are being proven true. And then there's culture, right? Our culture pretty much today is an individualistic, narcissistic, overly sexualized culture. Pretty much everything about what society says this is how to live is counter to the Bible, is counter to Christians. So yes, we're not being captured in America and beheaded, but there is definitely opposition to Christians. The Christian lifestyle, the Christian thought process, our belief system is being challenged on a daily basis. And so how do we respond? How do we respond to that? How does Nehemiah respond to this opposition? Let's look at verses 4 and 5. He says, Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight. For they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. How does Nehemiah respond to opposition? He doesn't argue. He doesn't debate. He doesn't post a long rant on his Facebook wall. Nehemiah prays. His go-to is prayer. And I would hope that if you've been with us for the last couple of weeks as we've been looking at Nehemiah, this is his go-to move. This is his default setting. Something arises that is opposition to him, and he prays. He goes to God. That is his default mechanism. Prayer is never a last resort for Nehemiah. It is always his first. God wants us to trust him. God wants us 
to depend on him. And one of the surest ways to express that is prayer. Someone, I was talking to somebody a couple days ago, and they said they were telling me about some of the struggles, some of the things going on in their life and their family. And they said, I'm just, I don't know what to do. I don't know how to respond. The only thing I can think to do, the only thing I can do is I'm praying for the situation every day. I'm praying for the situation every day. I'm praying for those family members every day, but that's the only thing I can do, and I feel helpless. How awesome of an answer is that? I wish I had the faith to say, every time something opposes me, every time I feel overwhelmed and exhausted, I go to God in prayer first. But that's just not true. I rely on myself. I rely on my own instincts, my own gifts and talents God has given me, as opposed to going to God first. Do you realize how powerful of a response daily prayer can be? How powerful a response it is that our first, when our first instinct is to go to God as opposed to trying to rely on ourselves. So Nehemiah prays. And it's great that Nehemiah's gut reaction is to pray. But this prayer in verses 4 and 5 kind of makes me a little uncomfortable. Kind of freaks me out a little bit. Basically, what Nehemiah is praying here is, God, stop these people who are opposing the building. Stop, stop what they're doing. Rain down on them. God, hit the smite button. And I have a little bit of an issue with that prayer, really because it kind of, basically, how do we reconcile Nehemiah's prayer here with prayers, and there's prayers like this all over the Bible. They're called imprecatory prayers where you're praying for God's judgment on someone or some people. And so how do we reconcile that with what Jesus says in Matthew 5.44 when he says, I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Those things seem to be putting heads a little bit, don't you think? This is not Nehemiah praying for his enemies and loving them. So here's a couple of things, though. That, here's some, some observations about this situation. It is always okay and it is always good to go to God with our emotions. Even if those emotions are anger or sadness or hurt or frustration, it is always good to go to God and say, God, I don't understand what's going on. I don't understand where you are. You feel distant. I don't understand how you could possibly let this continue. It's okay and good to go to God with those things because he will always listen and he will always empathize and he will always sympathize with us. And also, I want to point out that this is, there's a difference here between what Nehemiah is going through and a personal attack. Right? God, he's not praying against some people who were mocking him. They're really mocking God. They're really attacking God and God's plan. This is a different, there's a difference between a personal attack and attack on God's direct plan. This is not praying one of these kind of prayers against the person who cut you off in traffic, okay? This is not praying this kind of prayer against the, la- the family member who stole the last piece of bacon, okay? This is a serious and intense prayer, but this is Nehemiah responding to opposition to God's direct will and plan. God put this on Nehemiah's heart. God has made this happen. These people are opposing God. This is not a personal attack. And lastly, we've got to look at what Nehemiah is actually praying. Nehemiah is praying, God, intervene. God, show up. Not, God, give me the opportunity to intervene. Not, God, let me take care of this. But he is saying, God, I want you to intervene and stop them. 
So when it comes to praying for our enemies, even praying for those who are in opposition to God, here's kind of where I've, I've been wrestling with this all week. Um, I was talking to Jake about it. I was talking to Taylor about it. How do, we, how do we reconcile this prayer and these prayers that are throughout the Bible where people are praying to God, God, rain down judgment on them. How do we reconcile that with what Jesus says? And here's, here's my thought, and this is subject to change as I continue to read and learn more and talk to people smarter than me. Here's kind of where I land. Because really right now, if we're talking about opposition to God and we're talking about opposition to his plan, his will, his people, for us, you know, let's think about like ISIS. What do we do with ISIS? What do we do with those people who are capturing and beheading Christians? I would say the first thing we should be doing is praying for conversions. We should be praying that ISIS gets saved, that the Holy Spirit moves through ISIS and they have all become proclaiming, professing Christians. And you think, eh, that's probably not going to happen. God's done it before. He's done it throughout history. If you look in the New Testament, there's the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul, not many steps away from ISIS, was walking around with the authority of the government to kill and capture Christians at will. And then God meets him on a road and changes his entire world. And what better way to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute you than to pray that those in ISIS would become Christians? And what a testament to God that it would be. What do you think the impact on the world would be? I would say the second thing we need to do, especially in regards to ISIS, is pray that evil is restrained. Right? Jesus doesn't say, pray for your enemies to prosper. He says, pray for your enemies. And we can pray that God restrain them. God restrain the terror, restrain the hate, restrain the pain, whatever that looks like. That might look like government force. That might look like a coup rising up, something. But God, restrain this. Put this to an end. That's a healthy thing to pray. And lastly, I would say we should be praying for God's glorification in the situation. And even if that means God, rain down your judgment. God, step in and do what you do. Rain down judgment on them. But I will say that when we get to that point, I would say be very slow to pray God's judgment on people. I would say be very, very, very slow to pray God's judgment on people because here's the truth of the facts, guys. At one point, Christians, you were an enemy of God. At one point, you were a rebel against God's will. At one point, you were in opposition to God. But because God is good, and God is mercy, and God is just, he sent his son. And Jesus came, and he lived a perfect life. And he died. And in dying, he allowed himself to take on every sin ever committed, from Adam and Eve, biting the fruit in the garden, all the way up to the cross, Every way, all the way up to the sin you're going to commit next Tuesday when that guy does cut you off in traffic. Every sin on Jesus was laid so that you and I could no longer have to be rebels against God and enemies against God. And so I would say, when we pray, God, rain down judgment on them, be very slow to do that because you once were an enemy against God and he didn't rain down his judgment on you that you deserve. So there are ways to pray against our enemies and pray for our enemies. But we have to be very careful and very thoughtful about how we do that. So what does Nehemiah do next? He prays. He prays, God, 
slow them down, stop them from interfering with what we're doing. And then what does he do next? Look at verse 6. It says, so we built the wall, and all the wall was joined together to half its height. The people had a mind to work. Nehemiah prays, and then they get back to work. They don't argue. They don't fight. They don't debate. They just get back to work. See, God does answer Nehemiah's prayer. Nehemiah's prayer was, God, slow them down, stop them from interfering with your work. And he does so by giving the people a mind to work. Basically, it's these people were focused and determined to get things done. It says the wall was joined together at half its height. They're halfway done at this point. You ever have a big, giant project and you get halfway and you're like, yes, we're, we're, making, we're making progress here. But they were also halfway done with building a giant wall, so they're exhausted. They're tired. And they're vulnerable at this point. And it's usually when we're most tired and most vulnerable that opposition arises. Look at verse seven, verses 7 through 9 with me. But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that they were, the repairing of the wall of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. See, now the enemy is escalating their attack. This is no longer just mocking and discouraging. Now there is a plan to attack these people. There is a plan for war. There are going to be times in your life when you are struggling, fighting against sin, struggling and fighting against opposition in your life, and you're going to have a couple of days of victory, and you're going to feel good when you start doing that, when you start pursuing God, when you start having those victories, that's when Satan wants to turn up the heat. That's when Satan's going to escalate his attack. But here's the thing. They don't actually do anything. The bad guys plot and say, hey, let's all get together and go attack them. And they just sit around talking about it. They don't actually do anything. But there is, that word comes through and fear arises in the people. People start freaking out. People get scared. This is a beautiful tactic of Satan because he uses fear to paralyze us. He uses fear to slow us down. Right? We fear rejection of our friends or our family, and so we don't invite them to the church potluck because of fear. We fear we aren't qualified to help out in a ministry. We fear we aren't qualified to step into a situation and help, and so we don't do it. We fear God won't provide for us. God, how am I going to eat next week? I fear you're not there for me, so I'm not going to give my offering this week. Fear paralyzes us. And that's what Satan wants. Satan wants, he hates progress, and he wants us frozen in fear, paralyzed. But how does Nehemiah respond? Nehemiah prays. I hope that you have seen this over and over in these four chapters. This is his default. I'm going to pray, God be with us. So here's the progression that we've seen over and over again. The enemy threatens, there's opposition, Nehemiah prays, God steps in. The enemy threatens, Nehemiah retreats to God, God protects. This is not just for Nehemiah, this is a rich, this is a formula for us as well. 
there is opposition, go to God, God protects. That is a formula that continues to work today. But this time, Nehemiah doesn't just pray. He also sets a guard to protect the walls. So yes, it is good to pray. It is good when there's opposition to go to God in prayer. But we also have to take some practical steps too, right? So if you are out of a job, if you're looking for a job, pray, God provide me a job, God provide me a job. But you've got to fill out the applications. You've got to go on job interviews. Okay? You have to actually take some practical steps to make those things happen. When I was planning to go to seminary, um, seminary is expensive. And uh, I didn't have any money. <laughs> I got in, but I didn't have any money. And so I prayed, God, provide me some funds. I need some money to make this happen. I think you're, this is what you're calling me to do. God, provide me some money. I need to be able to do this. But at the same time, I wasn't giving to church. I wasn't really saving all that much. And I was working two part-time jobs that I was kind of working two part-time jobs, but not working nearly as hard as I could have. And so I was expecting God was just going to drop a bag of money in front of me, even though I wasn't doing any of the work. It wasn't until I took some practical steps to start tithing to church, to start saving and not going out as much, to start working more hours. It wasn't until that point that somebody at church came up to me and said, Tim, we have money. Me and my wife want to bless you and we want to write you a check to help you pay for your tuition. Somebody else in church came up to me and said, look, there's a scholarship at the school you go to. I put your name in for it so that it won't be so expensive for you. See, when you take practical steps... God blesses that. Yes, he wants us to depend on him. Yes, he wants us to trust him. But we've got to make some moves on our own. We've got to have the faith to take steps even when we can't see the next step in front of us. So as you pray against temptation, as you pray against opposition rising up in you, take practical steps to fight. Get accountability in your life. Shed light on the areas of darkness in your life. Bring special attention to that so that God can step in. We have to be taking steps in that. And so now as we continue on, look at verse 10 with me. In Judah it was said, the strength of those who fear the burdens is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves we will not be able to rebuild the wall. See, the word on the street now is that the people were tired. They're halfway done with this wall, but they still got a whole half to go. They're exhausted. Discouragement is starting to set in. The resources are fading. They're happy that they're halfway done, but they're exhausted. Building something new can be hard and can be exhausting. And fighting opposition can be exhausting. And it's important, and it's great that they started strong, but if they all just got to the point where they said, you know what, halfway is good enough, meh, and they gave up, they're still not protected. The city is still going to be threatened. It's important for them to finish well. It's important for us to finish well. They said there's too much rubble. There's too much brokenness to build. Because to build these walls, they had to get rid of the wreck stuff. They had to get rid of the burnt and unusable bricks. Daniel was telling us a story at men's group, which is Thursdays at 7 p.m. Uh, he was telling us a story. He was talking about doing um, rehab work on a house. And he was saying how much easier it is when he gets to go in and do all the work first to rehab the house, and he doesn't have to go in and correct somebody else's mistakes, right? That makes sense, you know? And so for them, 
It would have been so much easier if they didn't have to clear all this rubble away, if they didn't have to get rid of all this unused broken stuff, but they did, and that was exhausting to them. Getting rid of the broken stuff, getting rid of the hard stuff that is keeping you from pursuing God is not a fun job, but it's something that had to happen for the walls to be built. And so if you continue reading, the enemy makes another plan to attack. They make another plan to come after them. It says in verse 11, And our enemies said, They will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. I don't know if Sam Ballot and Tobiah and, and their little crew knew how discouraged the people in the city were, how tired and exhausted and hurt that they were. I don't know if they knew that, but that's kind of always how it goes, doesn't it? When you're most beat up, when you're most exhausted, when you're most tired, feels like that's when the enemy creeps in and tries to stop the things that are happening. He tries to stop you from pursuing God. And again, we see they're escalating the attack now, right? First it started with mocking and discouragement. Then it was, let's go attack them and using fear. And now it's, we need to go after them and kill them. Things have gotten real, real quick in Jerusalem. There's a plot for death because they know that the only way to stop this group is going to be to kill them. And if you read on, you find out that there are people in the area that hear about this plot. They come to the people in Jerusalem and they say, look, this attack, this attack is real. This isn't just a fear game anymore. This is, they're coming for you. And now the people are exhausted. They're discouraged because they still have a lot of work to do. And now they're afraid. So Nehemiah makes a plan. Nehemiah makes another plan. And it says, in verse 13, So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, in open places, I, stash, I stationed the people by their clans, with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. Fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. Nehemiah tells the people, bring out your weapons. Because this is going to happen. We're going to get into a fight here. And it's not just, Nehemiah doesn't just say, let's fight. Let's meet them at high noon and let's just see who wins. But Nehemiah says, remember the Lord who is great and awesome. Remember that our God is the God of the universe. He is great and awesome. Remember that the God who spoke all things into existence is on your side. He is great and awesome. Remember that the God who parted the Red Sea is on your side. He is great and awesome. He says, remember that our God is big. Remember that he is with us. But Nehemiah also reminds them of what they are fighting for. He says, remember that you're fighting not just for yourselves, but for your family, for your friends. We are striving as a community, we are striving as a church to build something not just for ourselves, but for the people of Roscoe Village, for the people of Chicago, for the people that can come in here and feel some hospitality, can get some rest, and can know that the gospel is true and good and awesome. Nehemiah prepared them for battle. He prepares them and says, get your bows, get your swords, get everything you need, because we're going to go to war. Verse 15, when our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. From that day on, half of my servants worked on construction 
and half held the spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah, who were building on the wall. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that they each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other. And each of the builders held, had his sword strapped to his side while he built. So they stand up and say, okay, you want to fight? Let's fight. And the enemy bails again. The enemy gave up knowing that it wasn't going to be a cakewalk, knowing that the Jews were ready. But you see, defending against the battle wasn't the victory. Defending and getting the, the enemy to back off wasn't the victory for the Jews. The victory is, okay, they bailed. We've got to get back to work. This wall has to get built because we're going to deal with this over and over again unless we build this wall, unless we get this finished, unless we can protect the city, we are constantly going to have these threats. There are some of us in this room who are right now just surviving the storm, who are just trying to defend and keep the enemy at bay. And surviving the storm is hard, and it's exhausting. And there are days where you just want to be done, but surviving the storm is only part of the battle. It's being able to withstand the storm, and those days where the enemy bails and they say, look, we're not going to get in, that you've got to be able to stand up, and in the words of the great poet Taylor Swift, shake it off, and continue to pursue what God has called you to do. There are times where you just need to try and get through to tomorrow, and I get that. But there are going to be breaks in the storm. There are going to be breaks in those moments. And at those times, you cannot just sit back. You have to continue pursuing God. And Nehemiah knew this, and so he has a plan going forward. And his plan is, look, we're going to keep building. You put the stone up with one hand, you keep your sword in the other one. That's just a cool way to build. Keep your sword on your side. Use your paintbrush in one hand, have your bow ready to go in the other hand. We must be ready at all times to defend against the spiritual war that is going on. But at the same time, we have to be ready at all times to serve our neighbors, to serve this community, to serve one another. They were ready to do battle with those enemies who would stand against them. And they did that with a sword. They did that with weapons. We do that with the Word of God, sharper than any two-edged sword. I don't know how many of you guys know this. Sunday mornings at 9.30 in the morning, upstairs in the lounge, there is a Sunday morning small group Bible study that goes on that is taught by two of our elders, by Dave and Carl, two men who love the Word of God, who, who are desperate to see disciples be made, men who love and want to impart knowledge and want to impart wisdom on us. They're not getting paid, they're volunteering because they want to see us grow. They actually just started a new series on faith in Hebrews 11. It's going to be really awesome. Sundays, 9.30 in the morning. Everybody is welcome. It's an awesome group. Monday nights, there's a women's study that's led here. 7 p.m., Chris Rico teaches it. They're finishing up a series on bad girls of the Bible. They're starting a new one. So if you're interested, yeah, I said bad girls of the Bible from the pulpit. It happened. Um, if you're interested, they're starting a brand new series. So show up Monday nights, ladies, 7 o'clock, Monday nights, here. Gentlemen, we just started a men's group on Thursday nights, here. We're going to be studying the book of Acts and seeing how the church is built and how we can be leaders in the church. There are more groups coming in the new year. Knowing the Word of God, being invested and engaged in the Word of God, that is how you protect yourself. That is the sword that you keep in your hand. 
We don't want to be caught unarmed and unprepared to do battle. So we want to provide you guys opportunities to get involved and start to learn more. Ask questions. Join one of these groups. Jump in at any point. But Nehemiah sees another problem. His plan is, okay, we're going to build, but we're going to be ready for war. The problem is, this wall is huge. So look at verse 19. Nehemiah's got another plan. And he says, I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, the work is great and widely spread. We are separated on the wall far from one another. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there, our God will fight for us. So he says, look, if something happens, if opposition arises, we're going to blow a trumpet, you go to where the trumpet is being blown, and you come ready for a fight. They were spread out, and so they had to find a way to rally everyone together. Back then, they used a trumpet. Today, in 2015, we use emails. We use social media. We use cell phones. We use connect cards. The only way people are going to know that you're in a battle is if you tell someone. The only way people are going to be able to help and support and encourage you and do what the church is made to do is if you let people know what's going on. If you're struggling, you don't have to do that alone. Literally, that's why the church is here, so that you are not fighting something alone. But people won't know what's going on with you unless you tell them. So get involved. Find a way. Use one of the many different communication forms that we have to let somebody know that you need some support, you need some prayer, you need some guidance, you need a phone call, you need something. Because that's why we're here. That's what we're doing. We're gathering together and we're supporting one another. So use those different communication forms. Or just grab me after a Sunday. But don't fight your battles alone when you don't have to. So Nehemiah wanted them to always be prepared. So let's look at the end of this, verse 21. So we labored at the work. Half of them held their spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. I also said to the people at that time, let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem, that they may be a guard for us by night and may labor by day. So neither I nor my brothers nor my servants nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes. Each kept his weapon at his right hand. They were always prepared. They had a system set up so that they were always focused on guard, ready to do battle, and also serve one another. Do you have a system in place to help you? Are you prepared when opposition shows up? Are you reading, are you getting in the Bible every day? Are you putting that truth in your heart every day? Are you engaging in one of these small groups that we have so that you can ask questions and learn more? Are you at a place where, like Nehemiah, his gut response to every situation was, I'm going to pray. I'm going to trust God is going to take care of this. Are you at that point in your prayer life with God where you are going to him with every opposition? Are you using the fact that we send out a weekly email with prayer requests so we can pray for one another and people can pray for you? Are you engaging with the events and with the community of CF? Are you finding ways to build relationships in this community? so that you're not fighting these things alone. Because look, guys, this is not a question of whether or not opposition is, opposition is going to show up in your life. It's going to be there. We live in a sinful, broken world. The question is whether or not you are going to be prepared when that happens. Are you prepared to be pursuing God, the God that is bigger than the enemy? He is bigger than anything you are facing. He is there, and He loves you, and He knows you, and He wants to serve you. Or are you still trying to fight this on your own? 
Because we serve a God who is not only big and powerful, but he is gracious and compassionate. He wants to have a relationship with you. He wants to step in and serve and fight for you. That's what he wants to do. He's a father. He's a dad. He wants to protect you. Are you letting him? He wants to remind you regularly that he loves you. We all, at one point, were in direct opposition to God. We were enemies of him, but God stepped into the situation. He said, no, I'm going to send my son. He's going to live a perfect life. He's going to die on a cross and make it possible so that no person ever has to be an enemy of me again. If you trust that Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection is the only way to have a right relationship with God, the only way to experience his presence, the only way to be seen as his son or daughter, that is how we oppose opposition. We start by having a relationship with him, by trusting him. Which means that then when opposition appears, just like Nehemiah said, we don't have to be afraid. Because we can remember that the Lord, who is great and awesome, is on our side. That is how we oppose opposition. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for who you are. God, like the song says, you are a good, good father. One who wants to protect, one who wants to provide for us. God, there is none like you. Because you are totally good, and you are totally perfect. And you are love. God, we live in a broken world, you know that. We live in a world where sin reigns sometimes, and we don't understand why God... Opposition comes at us in lots of different forms. God, help us to trust you. Help us to build that relationship with you where we are going to you with, with our problems, with our opposition, that we trust that you are there paying attention because you are, because you're faithful, because you have always been faithful, you will always be faithful. God, help us to have a plan in place for when opposition happens. Help us to join in on community and realize we don't have to fight this opposition on our own, but we can do it with people. God, there are people here this morning who are trying to fight and fight on their own. God, surround them with men and women who love them and who want to share the burden with them, who want to fight alongside them. God, there are people here who are just trying to survive. God, give them a break. Give them some rest. Lord, we live in a broken world, but we know that you are good. We know that you are in control, and we know that one day Jesus is coming back to put an end to death and to sin and to pain and to hurt and to all of those things that we have to deal with today. But until then, God, we've got to fight. So God, help us to be prepared for the fight. Help us to be prepared, but not so focused on the enemy that we can't serve each other. God, help us to serve one another. Give us opportunities to serve one another. Lord, we thank you for who you are. We pray all of these things because of who you are. Amen.